There is nothing wrong with your internet. Do not attempt to adjust your settings. We are controlling the podcast. We control the squealing and the screams. We can make your heart flutter, your eyes blur from tears, or sharpen your mind to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit back. We are in control of what you hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your settings. You are about to experience the awe and mystery known as the female mind. You are now entering the Fangirl Zone. We will continue exploring, discovering new worlds and new civilizations. Welcome to the Captain's Chair, a podcast on all shows in the Star Trek universe on the Fangirl Zone. I'm Chief Engineer Steve, and joining me on this mission into the unknown is... Redshirt Dave, and tonight we'll be discussing Episode 3 of Season 4 of Star Trek Discovery. Well, what did you think about this episode? A little annoyed at the hair change again. Fortunately, she went back to tactical or command hair for most of the episode. I'm like, good, stop changing your hair, you're driving me crazy. Your thing is her hair, and Fred's thing is her <laughs> soft, soft voice. Soft voice, like, well, maybe your hair's in the way of her voice. Could be. <laughs> yeah, well, I liked it. I know we're not rating it, but if we did, I would give it four out of five newly moisturized, sword-dropping tilly hands. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, but still, I don't know what, how many treacly moments did they have in the original Star Trek? There's so much sobbing and hand-wringing. They can't go an episode without it. This time it's a... Uh, Adira and uh, Gray, like, ah, okay, here we go. It's a good thing they have a ship's counselor now. Otherwise, these people would be crying up and down the hallways all the time. And, of course, Book had to let go of all his pain, too. So who's next? Is going to be a weekly, treacly moment or two? I don't think so. <laughs> you don't think so? I, don't I, think I wouldn't so. bet against it, Steve. Yeah, I mean, Adira's got Gray back. Now, yes, there could be some drama in that relationship now that they're both Corporeal. <laughs> yeah. Plastic corporeal. <laughs> and Book is not going to get over his grief that fast. I mean, yes, he got some peace in this episode, which will help, but it takes a long time. Really, don't ever get over your grief of losing loved ones like that. Yeah. Well, that's perfectly understandable, but it's, I mean, last year it was, wasn't it Stamets that was Mr. Treacly moment? Yes. <laughs> And now they moved on to these two. I'm just wondering who's going to get it all next. Will it be Tilly by the end of the season? Now that's still a possibility. Yeah. Something's going to make her crack. We'll see. I think this episode did help her some. Just like taking over that flying Booker ship on that attack on Osiris's ship. Brought kind uh, of got her back. I, I was hoping she'd crack a pulley and punch out that plant in Saru's room there. Yeah. <laughs> she, she really did touch it or sprayed too much water on it. Just growls at her. Rah. Anything else from you? Any uh, no, initial thoughts? No, I'm good. <laughs> You're good. good, good. <laughs> That's enough of that. <laughs> so, episode three, Choose to Live. Where have After, we heard that before? <laughs> I wonder. I wonder. After months spent reconnecting the Federation with distant worlds, Captain Michael Burnham and the crew of the USS Discovery are set to assist a damaged space station. A seemingly routine mission to build a good You know what? Where have we heard that before, too? Yeah. How did I get that on there? <laughs> oh, I don't know. And I read it. <laughs> oh, sorry about that, people. Get the episode recap. Yeah, it's all, it's all about feeding plants anyway. Yeah. Feeding plants and hugging it out. <laughs> Sword fights. It's an average episode. 
And why didn't the USS Credence get a retrofit like Voyager did? It's 23rd century. <laughs> I, I have a theory. Okay. Because they're, they're still piping in 1980s music over the comm <laughs> systems there. And the captain of the Credence is John Fogarty. <laughs> nice. <laughs> they're resisting any change because they don't want to lose that. There you go. So the USS Credence enters orbit of a planet eagerly awaiting the lithium shipment from the Federation. As First Officer Patrick Pickett orders the shields lowered to transport the lithium, the computer signals a security breach as three hooded figures transport in, incapacitating the two lieutenants assisting him. Maybe they should have updated systems. Yeah. The leader, a Romulan, informs tersely that she requires the dilithium. He tells her to wait her turn, to which she answers that was not possible. Pushy Romulan much? <laughs> Pickett lunges for a phaser, but the Romulan draws her blade, disarms him, and kicks him to the floor. Please, my friend, she tells him, choose to live. Well, Pickett doesn't do that because he grabs a rod and charges mm. at her, but she blocks and then stabs him in the gut, killing him. I'm sorry, she says, as she and her cohorts transport away with the dilithium. Well, that means everything right there. She did say she was sorry. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the incident is revealed to be a recording being observed at Federation HQ by President Relic, President Tarina of Navarre, Fleet Admiral Vance, and Captain Burnham. Vance explains that this was the fourth such theft of a dilithium cache, but the first time a Starfleet officer was killed. That's where they draw the line, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> we can steal all our junk, but don't kill our people. <laughs> really? He identifies the Romulan as Javini, a citizen of Navarre and a nun of the Kualat Malat. I like how they tied everything in. Since yes. some old familiar faces. You know, I yeah. really didn't expect to see. No. Tarina asks, given that the thefts began shortly after the gravitational anomaly that destroyed Quajon was discovered if there is a connection. Vance admits that there is no indication of a motive, but that Javini's crimes are clear and that she must be detained without delay. But what they needed was uh, data as Sherlock Holmes. Yes. To figure it out. <laughs> they are joined by Burnham's mother, Gabrielle, representing Walat Malat. That was a surprise. It was a surprise. Well, Good to see her, though. Yes, absolutely. While the crime was committed against a Starfleet officer, President Relic insists that they will not pursue Javini without Navarre's guidance as Navarre was considered a trusted Federation ally. Oh, let's lay on some politics there, Relic. Oh, my goodness. Talk about greasing the skids. Yeah, yeah I know this is important to everybody and somebody died, but... <laughs> <laughs> Trina adds her hope that Navarre will soon rejoin the Federation and that the anomaly's threat made mutual cooperation all the more important. So the president, remember our theory? Yes. That the president's going to have to make a life or death. Something's going to happen, and she chooses to spare Navarre instead of somebody else, some other planet perhaps, or the Navarre will get the warning while some other system doesn't. Right. I mean, there's only 13 astro astronomical units across. Oh, I wonder. I wonder. She then asked Burnham about the data they recovered from the anomaly that it randomly changed course and was not presently near any inhabited system. Burnham confirms this and adds that Commander Stamets is looking forward to working with the Navarre Science Institute to confirm his finding. I don't think Stamets looks forward to working with anybody. <laughs> I can tell he's failed every diplomacy class he ever took. Yes. <laughs> Are you guys taking a nap? Yeah, he, he almost had to 
send Culber with him to keep him in line and Good let Culber do the talking. Yes. Gabrielle then speaks up, saying that the hunt for Javini was an internal Quilat-Malat matter and asked for Starfleet to turn over the coordinates, adding her belief that Javini is acting as a Kualahaki in service of a lost cause. She admits she is uncertain as to why Javini would steal dilithium when the Federation was giving it away and that Javini's whereabouts has been unknown for years, but she believes that Javini's action had reason and the Quilat Malat must discover context. It's all about the context. Context. Burnham quickly reminds her mother that Javini killed a Starfleet officer, and that cannot be explained away with context. She gave her air quotes with that. Context, Mom. Gabriel does not excuse her actions, but believes the Quilat Malat must be the ones to pursue her, as only Javini's sisters could be counted upon to bring her in alive. Tarina concedes that the unique ways of the Quilat Malat must be respected. Relic asks Vance if Starfleet would be amenable to making it a joint mission as a gesture of mutual goodwill in the light of the pending union between Navarre and Federation. Of course she does. The Admiral replies that he would be most amenable under the circumstances and Gabriel concurs on the behalf of Quilat Malat. Oh, I just had a thought. Okay. What's the name of uh, Saru's planet again? I can't remember a tip of my tongue. Kaminar. Say goodbye to Kaminar while uh, yeah, Navarre, the Navarre, yeah. Navarre survives. No, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be one of those command decisions. Yeah, it sure could be. Relic then recommends Burnham as Starfleet's representative as she has both her confidence as well as Gabrielle's. As Burnham embraces her mother outside the conference room, she is approached by Relic, who asked to speak frankly. You're the president. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> president reminds Burnham that the joint mission was a political necessity and that Navarre and the Quilat Malat were to be respected, but to make no mistake, she, Burnham, is in charge of the mission. Yeah. <laughs> the anomaly is the greatest threat ever faced since the burn, and it was important to show that it was critical to restore the Federation, something that could not be done without Navarre. At the same time, it was important that those who would attack the Federation saw its strength and Javini must be brought in. Absolutely, Burnham agrees. When <laughs> Relic then begins to ask if her relationship with her mother will make it difficult, Burnham replies that it won't. Javini killed a Starfleet officer and Burnham would see her brought to justice for it. Yeah, but her mother knows if she hides Michael's uh, fuzzy pink slippers that uh, she'll go into a fit. <laughs> Mom! So, in USS Discovery's mess hall, Lieutenant Tilly joins Saru with a bowl of macaroni and cheese. Yes, even in the future. She uh, expresses distaste at the disc, but explains she has been speaking with Dr. Culber about trying new things outside her comfort zone. Well, maybe she shouldn't have put taco seasoning on it <laughs> instead of salt and pepper. Yeah, I, I don't know how anybody... How do you screw up mac and cheese? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the mac and cheese lady, it's you. Never had it before. It's like... <laughs> yeah. And instead of going into, uh, this is how she de- deals with it, sleeping with her pillow at the other end of the bed. What a hero. And taking the long way to the bridge, among other things, and asking Saru about helping water his plants. I suppose, I know we're going to get a Star Wars moment later, but if you take a long way to bridge, you go through all the trash compactors. Right, absolutely. Hold <laughs> <laughs> on, trash compactors! When he asks her what she hopes to gain from the novelty, she admits that she is unsure, adding that she keeps thinking about the cadets and the newly reopened Starfleet Academy and how certain they were with exactly what they were supposed to be and feeling 
she used to have last season. She said apologize knowing through has places to be. Well, if she wasn't dizzy tilly, she wouldn't be herself, so. Sturu <laughs> confesses he dined in haste because he had to communicate with the Kaminar Council soon and about repeating Kaminar's main spaceport as his people had elected to return to the stars now that the mystery of the burn had been solved. Yep, one of their own. Yep, they could be. Yeah. <laughs> and now he walks among them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Saru will miss his chance to go back and, and rescue him because uh, the president decided to have that planet blown up instead. Just saying. <laughs> he promises to find something meaningfully unusual for Tilly to do. In the meantime, Wong was here to miss his plans, warning not to touch the swamp kelp because it, it was in bloom, adding that she did not want to know what happened if she did. Ooh, yeah, I, I want to know. Now yeah. I want to <laughs> In engineering, Burden finds Stamets examining equations and Booker going over the data recovering from the anomaly. She asks Booker if Stamets has put him to another job, and he calls it tacky on treasure hunt. But it keeps him in the action, such as it is. Thinking about the stuff they're trying to come up with with the anomaly, uh, and it doesn't have tachyons. Yeah. Does that make it man-made? And remember I had that, well, maybe it's man-made or... Yeah, it, that's from the future. a possibility. Yeah. Especially but they're, with they're, being able to change directions. Yeah, they already did a, a Red Angel thing from the future, I thought, later. And they're like, oh, they've done that. Not that that would stop TV. <laughs> so maybe it is. The other theory we had was uh, two universes crashing into each other. Right. Everybody take write that down. Yep. Speaking of action, Burnham asked to requisition book a ship apologetically act, adding that it was Starfleet and Quatmalots only and joking that she would turn it Washington wax, baby. <laughs> the contention then goes to Stamets. Booker explains that Stamets' new theory is that the anomaly is a primordial wormhole. Okay. Yep. Back to the Big Bang. And that's and what happens it. when two galaxies collide. You get a Big Bang. <laughs> read a book, Stamets. Read a book. That's the mirror universe. As Burnham approaches, Stamets explains that four out of five criteria fit. The gravitational distortions were consistent. As it is the shape of the gravitational well, its ability to change direction, and a large amount of accreted dark matter, leading him to dub it a DMA, short for Dark Matter Anomaly. Like somewhere I can picture in the writer's room, can we stop saying Dark Matter Anomaly? Yes. Called it? <laughs> Somebody else is like, thank God. Burnham recognizes that the tachyons would be a fifth factor to confirm Stamets' theory, but none appear to be present. Hmm. Stamets is adamant that the data holds the answer, but until he finds it, he can't predict his behavior or prevent another disaster like Quajon. Burnham reminds him that the Navarre Science Institute will be a great help with Stamets. Yeah, they're a great help. Yeah. <laughs> with Stamets, transits the raw data to them. After Burnham leaves, I have the uh, uh, luxury of seeing the episode twice now, so I know all these things are going to happen. <laughs> right. After well, I see it from the future. After Burnham leaves, Booker approaches asking to accompany Stamets to Navarre. At first, Stamets did not believe he would want to. It would be boring with all the mathematical discussion, but Booker insists he needs something to do to help. Stamets warns he can't bring the science up to speed without a clinical forensic discussion of Booker's loss. Booker assures him he can handle it. Maybe he didn't flunk all the diplomacy classes. He, he passed uh, Psych 101. In Discovery Sick Bay, the new golem body for Gray is completed, and Gray expresses his feelings about almost being part of the world again. No more looking in from the outside, feeling invisible. And Dara remarks, that the world doesn't know what they've missed. Well, sweet talk. And that the crew will love him, though not as much as they do each other. Ooh. Gray asks Adira to thank Dr. Culver again, and they tell him that he can do it by himself in a few moments in person. At that moment, Guardian Z appears via hollow, and Dr. Culver informs him of the preparations are made. I'm like, Guardian Z? Oh my, who else is going to pop up? Yes. <laughs> this episode. 
Zeke calls it an atypical arrangement as befits a Shintara like any other. He greets Adira, who thanks him for his help, and asks if Gray is also present. Adira confirms he is. All you have to do is get some talcum powder, you know, like spray it, and (laughs) it'll land on him. That's what we do. (laughs) Gray asks Adira to express his gratitude to Z, and they do so, adding that Gray had wanted to become a guardian himself before the fatal accident that they killed him. Z is also hopeful that the transfer is successful. Gray will be able to continue his training. However, he also warns there are unpredictable dangers to the procedure, and that he cannot guarantee that Gray's consciousness will find a home in the synthetic body without a host's mind to guide him in. That means he could be in, in a bar tap in, ten, in their 10 forward there. Yes. <laughs> so the only way to talk to him is to pour a beer. <laughs> Sorry. There was the possibility that Gray could be lost forever, or we could just have a beer. Gray, through Adira, says that he understands the risks and is willing to proceed. Lastly, Z asks if they have the consent of Tal. And both affirm that they do. Let us begin, Z says. I thought they already did. They just told him that he was ready. And he goes, so, ready? (laughs) Yeah, I just said he was ready. (laughs) But I need his consent. the symbiote, so you got to verify the symbiote's ready, too. Like, it's got nothing to do. (laughs) Yeah, right. Meanwhile, Burnham is walking through the decks with Saru explaining the mission, which he dubs to be difficult. Gabriel is bringing one of the co-op. Malat sisters, and Burnham wants to bring a tactical officer to even the balance and not wanting the appearance of favoring one or another. She laments that the mission could be straightforward without the politics and warns Saru not to get her started on Relock. To her surprise, Saru recommends Tilly to accompany her on a mission. While agreeing that the combat was not one of Tilly's strengths, Saru points out that both Durnham and the Coat Malat were skilled combatants and that the Tilly's intuitive diplomatic skills could be a to diplomatically sensitive mission. Ultimately, he believes... <laughs> She will do the mission good, and it, should, and it will do so good for her, too. Board book a ship. Tilly excitedly expresses her enthusiasm because she has no other setting for the mission to Gabrielle's Coat Malata score. Then apologizes if it sounded like she's good that the Javini was getting arrested. The sister notes, stop, warrior nun, right, Steve? Yes. The sister knows that Tilly worries that he would be dismayed by the lieutenant's enthusiasm. Tersely tells her she is not. Absolute candor. I dig that, says Tilly. <laughs> She was okay before, but now that I was like, oh, really? Yeah. At the controls, Gabriel reminds Burnham, but she told her about Spock being accused of murder and how Burnham's belief in his innocence was justified. Burnham replies it was different because she knew him. Gabriel retorts that she knows Javini. Burnham asks her mother about Javini. I was calling her Javini the ninny while I was watching this. Might, that, might, that might not be too fair. No, I think anyway. she'd kick both our asses. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't say these things out loud then. Burnham asks her mother about Javini. Was to her needing to know what she was dealing with. Gabrielle explains that Javini was Kowat Malat's sister who found her when she arrived in the future and nursed her back to health. Uh, wouldn't you know it? Of course she was. As the ship approaches its destination, Gabrielle warns that they would have to leave their phases aboard and they were not part of the Kowat Malat way. Uh, Burnham protested the idea of going in unarmed against a member of the Kowat Malat. Did I say unarmed? No. <laughs> and she put her L right up to her forehead, even though you're my daughter. <laughs> Gabrielle replies, as her escort gives Burnham and Tilly each a Tang Kalak, the blade carried by the Quat Malat. Cool. I, I'm going to go online and find one of those now. Oh, Burnham notes it would be at a disadvantage. Gabrielle reminds her that it was agreed the ways of the Quat Malat would be respected, Gabrielle. Burnham and Tilly take their blades just as the ship drops out of warp near the barren moon. Oh, Tilly. I'm good with this thing. Watch, watch me. Watch me swing this blade. Right. <laughs> Grabs it and drops it. It's so yep. heavy. <laughs> Darn moisturized hands. The ship lands on the moon and Tilly reports not finding any life signs on the surface. 
Burnham tells her to scan under the surface that Javini had to be there somewhere. Tilly asks why this particular location, as it was fairly unremarkable. Burnham asks her mother if Javini had anything to tire there, but is told if she did, she did not choose to share it with her sister. Tilly discovers there was indeed a cavity directly beneath the ship with a breathable atmosphere and was also detecting the signal from the tracker on the dilithium cache. Just then, the intruder alert sounds as three of Javini's mercenaries beam aboard. The Star- they can get anywhere they want to. Yeah. The Starfleet officers hold their own, but the mercenaries disarm Gabriel and kill the other Qualot Malot sister. No. I wanted her to be in her own spin-off series. Yes. Tilly is able to throw a blade to Gabrielle, who is able to cut down all three of the mercenaries swiftly. From being <laughs> restrained to taking out all three. Yeah, to Bruce Lee. Yep. Yep. Right then, Javini teleports aboard, looking disturbed on seeing the dead and saying she had not wanted more blood to be spilled. However, she tells them, choose to live by leaving immediately. If they choose to follow, their lives will be forfeit. She then teleports away. Tilly quietly asks Burnham if they planned on ignoring Javini's warning, and Burnham <laughs> makes it clear that they are. Yeah. Mm-mm. Back in Discovery Sickbay, Adira tells Z they can't see Gray anymore, nor feel his presence. Z confirms that the unjoining was successful, but he could not yet feel Gray's presence in the golem. He counsels Adira to be patient and asks Culber to keep him apprised before ending his communication. Adira is upset and confused, wondering how they could just sit and wait. Culber suggests that they both go for a walk, assuring Adira that Dr. Pollard was there and that Gray's monitors would alert them of any change in his condition. Reluctantly, Adira follows Culber out of sickbay. And if she'd only listened to what Z said, that Gray needed a mind to lead him into the body, we would have avoided a lot of this. <laughs> Shortcut your part of the episode. Burnham's and Tilly transport into the cavity below them, which provides to be a cavernous chamber. Tilly wonders if it was a lost cause or a lost civilization, and Gabrielle remarks it felt like a mausoleum. Burnham notes that the desiccation on the organic pods in the room indicates they were several centuries old, possibly more. Yeah, I think some of the uh, chambers on Indiana Jones were in better shape than that place. Yes. <laughs> when asked why Javini would bring dilithium to a crypt, Gabrielle admits she has no idea, thinking Tilly might be right and Javini was simply using the chamber as a safe house. Tilly <laughs> finds evidence of grave robbers and Gabrielle recognizes Javini's cloak draped over a dead alien. Burnham does not recognize the species. And it was listed as unknown in the Federation records. How's that possible? I don't know. Tilly <laughs> speculates that the fallen alien was Javini's lost cause, but Gabrielle is not so sure, believing that if she had pledged her sword to it, the oath would end with its demise. At least Tilly's trying. That was a, an intuitive leap, which is ultimately going down the right trail. Burnham is skeptical that Javini is acting from a position of honor at all, given that her mercenaries just killed one of her own sisters. Gabrielle counters that Javini would not draw against them unless she felt her cause was threatened and that the reasons matter, something she would have thought Burnham would understand. Burn. Yeah. <laughs> Sensing the tension between mother and daughter, <laughs> Tilly steps in about how she did not get along with her own mother who did not like being around children, but would give her the biggest hug if she was there right now. <laughs> I know you're my family, but I really don't like you around. <laughs> wow. Uh, 
Just then the cavern shake till he detects that the dilithium has been activated. They're not on a moon at all. They're inside a massive starship and Javini just activated. What? Yeah. The dilithium tracker is right above them. And how Burnham figured that thing sticking out was a turbo lift platform, I don't know, but what they go? Well, we could take, yeah. Well, she did look startled when it actually worked. She was just kidding around, but actually throwing up in the air. She's like, oh my God, I got it right. And we go over to Navarre, where Stamets explains the data recovered from the DMA to the Navarre Science Council, how it caused massive gravitational instability to anything within 12 astronomical units of the anomaly's ergosphere, such as what occurred on Quajon, and his belief that it was the work of a primordial wormhole. Provost Takar notes that the council is aware of his theory and suddenly all go into a meditative trance, much to Stamets's Exasperation. Yeah, exasperation. That too, but he was yeah. all over the place. It just threw Stamets off as bad as it did me. <laughs> as he had stated that time was of the essence to discover how to deal with the threat of the anomaly. Now we know why he went to engineering school and not yes. uh, li- liberal arts. All throughout, Booker stands on the sidelines, gazing across the desert. Tarina offers a warm red spice, as it was found to be soothing to those in emotional distress. Okay? Is it spice? Well, maybe <laughs> she detected that he was wearing Old Spice. Yeah. While she expects grief at the loss of his home world and people, Tarina also notes that Booker's body language indicates guilt and that it was illogical to blame himself for what was essentially an act of nature. Booker is surprised that Vulcans were so emotionally attuned. Tarina acknowledges it was a common misconception, noting that while Vulcans did express emotions, sometimes strongly, they were trained to suppress them. Yep, seen it. Yep. <laughs> Booker half-jokingly asks for a few pointers on the, that approach, and Tarina notes that discipline of the Arimu required a lifetime to master and that the respite would be fleeting for the uninitiated. Drowning man only needs one breath, Booker replies. Through that. <laughs> this guy, these two are really going at it. Yes. Karina notes that his Quajon emotional was as essential to his being as air and blood and what he really needed was freedom from his guilt. Booker believes that there should have been a sign that the disaster was coming and that he had missed it. If he had not, he would have been able to save his family and says that was not logic. So, okay. If, if it's not, okay, if it's two universes colliding, he's, nothing, he's not going to pick up anything. But if it's something from a man-made or alien-made, would he be able to pick up something like that? As big as that is? I don't yeah. See how. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see how. Board the moon ship, Tilly notes the bizarre reaction system and believes the controls for the ship must be elsewhere. However, she locates the dilithium using the tracker. Burnham asks if she can power down the ship from there. She took the tracker out, didn't she? Yeah. Why don't you just leave it there, just in case, Tilly? Yeah. Tilly Things have gone. Tilly confirms she can, but warns Vinny will detect signs of sabotage. As Tilly works, Burnham examines the pictograms on the nearby wall, showing a supernova and a moon leaving its world. That's the ship they're on, fleeing... The unlivable homeworld of its creator. Cool. Both Burnhams realized that the ship was not a mausoleum, but a refugee ship, and the pods held the people in cryogenic stasis. Gabrielle is convinced this is the cause that Javini has sworn her blade to, and she was protecting them from grave robbers. 
till he manages to deactivate the engine and asks what's next. Much to her chagrin, Burnham instructs her to stay put. <laughs> yeah. As late. What? <laughs> at, least, at least he didn't tie her up like a goat. <laughs> Hold on to this piece of rope. We'll be right back. In the mess hall, Adira angrily hurls darts into a nearby dartboard. Say, what? When yeah. did that show up? I know. The whole thing was like, wait a second. Yeah, this is looking like 10 forward. <laughs> I know. It's actually kind of exciting. I think we've asked that before. Doesn't this ship have his 10 forward? You guys need to go relax someplace. Yep. Believing it was a mistake to let Gray transfer into the golem. If they hadn't, Gray would still be there and safe. Culber reminds Adira that it was not their decision, but Adira is still worried that Gray was really gone and warns the doctor do not say anything about he would always be in their heart or their memories as it wasn't the same. Well, she knew what was coming, didn't she? <laughs> Don't give me that line. Culber agrees it's not, but reminds Adira that they were not alone. Culber then sits down with Saru, who asks if Gray was still in limbo. Culber notes that it could be indefinitely, and that it was the uncertainty that was affecting Adira most. Saru remarks he was reminded of an old Kelpian adage about how it's difficult to ride two veiled beasts with only one set of buttocks, earning a <laughs> laugh from the doctor who suggests riding three of them. Okay. <laughs> Saru compliments Culber's ability to act as ship's doctor and ship's counselor, which Culber agrees that was what he was there for to help. Yeah, he's been gearing his way right into that position. Saru believes that sometimes the most important thing they could do was reach for one another. Adira hears this and returns to sickbay, where they look at Gray's golem still unchained. They tell him how strange it is not to be able to feel him, fearing he was lost and alone. They mention what Culber told them about connecting to people being a light in the dark, and if Gray could not find his way, Adira would guide him. Yeah, that's what Z told you to do. They take Gray's hand and promise to stay there until he can come back, adding a plea that he does come back. Back on the moonship, Tilly laughs to herself about how she is most definitely outside her comfort zone, as Javini arrives telling her to step away from the engine. Well, she was captain aboard a Mirror Universe ship. Oh, yeah. Threatened to kill people. That wasn't outside her comfort zone? I guess that was the old Tilly. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> the, mo the mirror Tilly. Yeah. You know it's in there, in this town. Yeah. As she does, Burnham transports next to her and Gabriel directly behind Javini. Javini tells Gabrielle that she should have walked away and lunges with her blade as Gabrielle tries to reason with her. The Starfleet officers move to help her, but Gabrielle warns them off, saying she can handle herself. However, their battle is brief as Javini disarms Gabrielle and holds her blade to her throat. Well, yeah. That was pretty cool. Sword work, the first time oh, and the second yeah. one. Really cool. I got to see two Quat Malots go at it. Yeah. Sonia Son is the actress who plays... Uh, Javini? Yeah, Gabrielle Burnham. Oh, yeah. I don't know who trains them or gets them to do this sort of... I'm, I'm sure it's all choreographed. It looks good. So, Javini demands that Tilly bring the warp drive back online, and while Burnham tries to reason with her, telling her she could be brought in with them without abandoning her cause. I roll. Javini is skeptical, believing Burnham is just trying to get her to drop her guard, but Burnham promises only the truth. Now, she didn't go into soft voice that, that Steve's, I mean, Steve, uh, Jeff, <laughs> that our friend uh, is uh, afraid of all the time. Well, uh, what? We'll see what he has to say about this. Yeah, Fred, come on. On, uh, on his feedback for this episode. Okay. Gabriel vouches for her, revealing that Burnham was her 
Daughter was surprised Javini. What? You didn't tell me. Asked about the alien in the cocoon, Javini explained that they were called Abronians and that they were the last of their kind. Their biomatter had a high concentration of latinium, which proved to be a magnet for grave robbers. Were they swallowing coins or something? <laughs> as kids, as, yeah. Javini, <laughs> that's how we hide it. Yeah. Where's all your latinum? Jeez, I don't know. Javini received a telepathic distress call from the vault's garden, Taglodan, while traveling through the system. The moon ship was under attack. Javini killed the grave robbers and covered Taglodan's body with her cloak, taking his cause as her own. As long as she was breathing, she would find a way to protect them. The revelation of the anomaly led her to start stealing the lithium to be able to move the moonship, such as the life of crime. When asked why she didn't simply request a lithium from the Predators, Javini reveals that she had. Dilly explains that the Starfleet does not disperse the lithium to individuals. Well, she could just go fill out the right paperwork. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she would have to need needed to reveal the Obronians to the Federation, which have just jeopardized her safety. Well, just get it for somebody else, or or steal it. Oh, wait, she was stealing it. Yeah. <laughs> Burnham deduces that the uninhabited planet they were orbiting was intended to be the new Abronian homeworld, and that the Abronians would not have remained in their cryosleep after arriving in their new homeworld. Makes sense, which meant something was wrong with the cryostasis. She offers to help fix it and fulfill Javini's oath. Javini gives Burnham until Tilly repairs the engine to figure out the problem. On Navarre, the council emerges from the meditation with a big stretch. <laughs> And Stockyard explains to Stamets that the advance of the absence of the Tekkens means that the hypothesis uh, remains unproven. Well, no kidding. Yeah, we got, they, they wake up and they tell me we got nothing. Stamets angrily insists there must be a primordial wormhole, as all the other factors fit, and reminds them that the lives were at stake. Mr. Diplomacy. Stockyard chides Stamets for his emotional response, and he was supposed to be a scientist. Yep, counter dig. Tarina suggests that the proof may be obtained in another way as they have witnessed to Quajon's destruction presence and turns to Booker. As Tachyons were superluminal, they would have created a Chernikov radiation on, on the uh, impacting Quajon's atmosphere, which would have given off a distinct blue cast. Booker had explained to Stamets what he had seen and not remember any glow, but Tarina notes that the stored memories may hold the key and suggests a mind meld with Booker. Stamets is aghast, <laughs> as always. As this would mean forcing Booker to relieve his trauma again, dude, let the grown man walk. Booker wonders if she's right, if it was the only way. Stamets insists that Booker should not be made to suffer because of his failure and that they would solve the DMA in another way. Man, there's a lot of projection going on from Stamets here. Oh, yes. Booker thanks him for his concern, but believes this is how he can help. He would. Stamets steps back and the other council members depart as Tarina initiates the mill. Inside Booker's mind, she relives seeing the birds plummeting from the sky. Yeah, they sucked up all the blue glow. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> all the blue glow of the birds died, and Quajon's moon being shattered by a gravitational distortion. Tarina has seen all she needs, but Booker insists there's one other thing she needs to see. His last memory of his brother Kahim and his, his nephew, Leto, just before Quajon's destruction. Tarina reminds him he can only relive the memories of the past, not alter them. But that's what holograms for. And Booker explains he... He keeps seeing the last moment he saw in Leto's in his mind, wondering what he had missed. In the memory, Leto turns back to him, and Booker recognized that Leto had looked back to him and saw that Booker loved him. Booker <laughs> looks up in the sky as again as Tarina dissolves the meld and thanks her. Tarina tells Stamets that there was no evidence of tachyons in Booker's memory and departs. Wow, right back to the beginning again. Stamets apologized for making Booker go through it for nothing, but Booker replies that it wasn't for nothing. Pay attention, Stamets. Back on the moonship. <laughs> Stubernum discovers the fault in the cryo system and repairs it. She activates the awakening system and tells Javini, the ninny, that they will be fully warmed up in a few minutes. 
Gabrielle tells her the path has ended and a new one has awaited, so give up. Apologizing, Javini drops her blade. Uh, ooh, I should go find out where she dropped that so I can grab it for myself. That's what they do with old uh, Avengers stuff, too. They just leave it yes, lying around. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But where'd you get the sword? Burnham produces a pair of binders, which uh, Gabrielle takes as her responsibility is to bring in Javini in. Javini understands and submits without resistance. I was just thinking about the, the fluffy pink handcuffs I have in my room, but let's, we're not going. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. Yeah, no resistance there either. End of story. Back aboard Booker's ship, they speak death rites over the fallen Qualat sister and watch as the Obronians descend from the moonship to the new world. How do you suppose they did that? Was that in little pod things or did someone say something? I thought someone said something. Like that. There they go. Uh, like, Yeah, there was some ships. that. Those were ships? Okay. Yeah, inside <laughs> the moon. It's like, what? <laughs> okay, that time. Yeah. TARDIS is bigger on the inside than... <laughs> As Booker Ships returns to Federation headquarters, Tilly asks Gabrielle about what Javini said about her path being set on meeting Tagligan and what Gabrielle told her about a new path. Gabrielle explains that the path ends, change, all throughout everyone's lives and that the Kualat Malat phrase, choose to live, was an abbreviated form of a longer one. The path you are on has come to an end. Choose to live. When one was at the wrong end of a Qalat Malat sword, she half-jokingly adds, It seems an easy choice. Move on to a new path and live, or stay on the same path and die. (laughs) (laughs) Tilly got that one right away. Yep. Tilly asks about the death being metaphorical, and Gabriel consents the path's end is harder to recognize but one must be willing to look inside themselves with absolute candor. Gabrielle then joins her daughter on the bridge and admits she asked for a joint mission because she was not sure that she would be able to bring Javini in and that Burnham would have made her do so. You suppose Javini had an any? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure she did. <laughs> Burnham admits that Gabrielle had been right, that reasons did matter. Javini had saved an entire species from extinction. While that does not erase her crimes, it still means something. Yay. At Federation headquarters, Burnham is debriefed by Rillick and Tarina and Vance and asks that mitigating circumstances be taken into account at Javini's sentencing. Rillick thanks Burnham for her service, but notes her request was not necessary. With some reluctance in his expression, Vance informs Tarina that Starfleet was remanding Javini into her custody for extradition to Navarre. So they don't even get the Punisher. Of course not. Well, just, well that's what uh, Michael was arguing for, but then she didn't get yeah. the keepers. Like, hey, wait a minute. Serena raises her hand in salute and offers peace and long life, then departs with Javini. Gabrielle bids her daughter farewell and hopes she finds peace with what had occurred before following. Burnham asks if Javini will be held accountable, and Vance replies, that would be up to Navarre now. Burnham had been given a mission to bring Javini to justice. Rillick tells her she executed that mission admirably, but her part in the matter was now concluded. Day out of it. <laughs> I got a feeling we're going to see her again after that exchange. I think so. As she prepares to leave, Burnham brings up Patrick Fickett and his family, his partner, Hyral, and their two children, Crin and Nael, and how they would want justice for his death. Rillick agrees, but also points out that returning Navarre to the Federation would benefit millions and that Fickett's family would receive justice in time before she leaves. Yeah, in time, when Benny's natural life is over. (laughs) 
Burnham asked Vance if he's okay with this decision. Vance admits he would have preferred a different outcome, but it was hard to argue with the president trusting in Navarre as the Federation asked Navarre to trust them. Then he asked if Burnham liked music, telling her to think of the Federation as an orchestra, with Burnham as the first chair violin, with showy, challenging solos, himself as the drum section, setting the pace, providing the backbone, and Rillick as the conductor when she signals us we play. It was not their job to look after the others, but to focus on their own parts and trust that she knew the symphony. He said that one part of the symphony was drunk, too. (laughs) Burnham notes the amount of analogy and vote Vance jokes that, yeah, he gets paid by the letter. Back aboard Discovery, Tilly enters Saru's quarters, finding him watering his plants to the sound of Kaminar Sea Frog, a sound Saru recalls falling asleep to as a child back on his homeworld. He admits that being back on the ship again was a work in progress, but he worked each day to find balance. Tilly asks if he had been the one to suggest to Burnham to take her on the mission, and he confirms he thought it would further her quest for new experiences. Life or death. (laughs) She offers to help water the plants as she had offered, and jokingly puts her hand close to the swamp kelp blooms, though he had warned her not to. About getting you know, a heart attack. There's an old song called The Swamp Kelp Blues. I uh, wouldn't surprise me a bit. I bet you there's a bunch of swamp kelp down in Louisiana. <laughs> in sick bay, Gray remains unresponsive until brain activity suddenly begins. Adira has fallen asleep holding Gray's hand, and Gray begins to grasp their hand himself as he becomes conscious. Oh Adira wakens and asks if he is himself. Well, who the hell would he be? Some <laughs> lost spirit somewhere? <laughs> Gray reacts with wonder. It's Spock. The original yeah. Spock appears. <laughs> Fascinating. Yes. Gray reacts with wonder at having corporeal form again and replies he was definitely himself. Minus the mole. Adira helped him to his feet as Dr. Culber enters, saying that Guardian Z was on his way. So the, in a future episode, there'll be a duplicate Gray. and. Adira will spot the lack of mole on one and not the other and right. make the right decision. Though told to take it slow and adjust to his new body, Gray has no trouble running to the doctor and hugging him, saying he had words planned to thank him, but they don't come close to expressing how he felt. Cobra assures him nothing needs to be said. Z then appears via hollow, glad to see that Gray had returned, and Gray promises a hug for him as well when they meet in person. Yeah, I can see Gray heading back to Trill. Adira asks him how he feels, and Gray answers that he felt whole again and home thanks to them. He had heard what they said and felt them reaching for him. Adira admits they were not sure if he would without Tall linking them both, but Gray assures them that he will always be linked to them. Today's opposite day, sucker. (laughs) On his ship, Bunker lies on his bed looking at a hollow projection of Quajon's forest as Burnham enters. She's surprised to see it, as... It was too painful a week before. Booker admits it was still painful that morning and was still hard to look at, but also nice. He explains he got a memory back and now feels that someday the grief will fade. But if he didn't want his other memories to fade with it, he had to open himself back up to them, both good and bad. Apparently, he took liberal arts in college and passed all the psychology (laughs) course. Absolutely. Burnham notices he is wearing his... Ikuzin amulet again. Booker had not worn it for years since it didn't feel right to him, but now it did. She notices he seems peaceful, and he admits that in that moment he did. 
Sometimes that's all we get, Burnham replies as they look up at the projected sky together. I guess I needed a little time alone anyway. Got to stop the episode there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, show us more. So, Steve, I already did a few boomer talks in here. Oh, yeah. Uh, ready for a few Easter eggs? Oh, let's do it. Might as well. <laughs> Unless you want to beam out of here. The title of the episode is an Easter egg itself. The phrase, choose to live, spoken by the co-op a lot, lawyers, uses kind of a threat warning a combatant that they've still got time to back down. In, in the TV show, Picard, Elnor uses this phrase many times before destroying people with his sword. Yeah, that's before we learned the whole, li- the whole line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> before drawing her sword, Javini appears to use a Vulcan nerve pinch on one of the Starfleet officers. That all happened so fast, it was it's hard to pick up. Yes. It's not really actually Romulan or Vulcan that's super relevant here. The next generation established that the nerve pinch can be done by non-Vulcans, notably Jean-Luc Picard and Data. I bet Data's hurts, though. Oh, yeah. Crank, ow! In the first episode of Discovering Michael Burnham, a human raised by Vulcans, used a nerve pinch on Captain Giorgio. For all you completists out there, the nerve pinch was first used in the original episode, The Enemy Within. The reappearance of Gabriel Burnham, a human sister within the order of the Kuat Malat, is a callback to Discovery Season 3. At that point, we learned that, like Michael and the crew of Discovery, Gabriel was drawn into the future. The difference being that Gabrielle arrived in the 32nd century, several decades before the crew of the Disco. In this episode, we learn that the person who helped Gabrielle adjust to living is in the new future is a now rogue Kuat Malat, Javini. Donini. She's going to get me for that. Kuat Malat originated in Picard Season 1 episode, Absolute Candor. Though, canonically, this Romulan order has existed for much longer. In Discovery, it appears that both Vulcans and Romulans, at least one human, can be part of this order. Gabriel mentions that Javini is probably on a quest connect to the Kualankai. This is Kuatmalat terms that means a person on a quest that is bound for their blade to a lost cause. Do you think Picard did it better than the Discovery, or is it pretty close? This whole, the whole Kuatmalat uh, mythology, yeah. Uh, we're getting more of it, I think, with Discovery than we did on Picard. Yeah. I mean, we got introduced to it, but we never really saw them in action except Elnor. And here we're yeah. saying that, yeah, all of these women are BAs. It'll be interesting when we see it next. I, I, yeah. want, I wonder if Picard will return to it somehow. But, I kind of think we might see more of it. Okay. Especially with them doing some wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did they ever do that on Star Trek? So anyway, when Elnor bound himself to a lost cause of John Luke trying to find Soji in the cause of Daji's death, we first saw Saru's Garden Discovery Season 2, specifically in the episode of An Obol for Sharon. Because the garden is such a good shape here, we have to wonder who's been tending it in the five months since Saru left Discovery and went to work on Kaminar. Well, probably Gray. What else did he have to do? Yeah. <laughs> did he have all the plants put in stasis? Hey, I just realized that they had the uniforms in the future were Gray because they wanted to honor Gray. That's a stretch. Did he have all his plants put in stasis? Was someone else trying to care plants? Well, probably Data's cat took care of the plants. Right. The idea of a trill garden originates in Deep Space Nine. Essentially, there are people who attend to the symbionts when they're not joined to a host. Guardian Z first appeared in Discovery in the Season 3 episode, Forget Me Not. Guardian Z mentions that the transference of Gray's consciousness is the Jitara like any other. The word Jiantara refers to a moment in which a joint trill can meet their previous hosts. This comes from Deep Space Nine episode facets in which the previous host of Dax embody people who are friends with Josiah Dax. So the idea that Gray would be able to inhabit a body outside of the symbiote 
Tal is similar to what has happened with previous hosts of Dax in that episode of Facets. Whew. Fun episode. <laughs> yeah. The reason this is so different is that the transference of gray tiles into a new body is permanent, and the body is also non-organic. Well, that won't be a problem. <laughs> Burton's mom mentioned the moment when Spock was accused of murder, and the reference is the events of Discovery Season 2, in which the rogue AI named Control manipulated the hologram to make it look like Spock killed someone. We're barely into Season 4, and they've got a rich history already. Yeah, a lot of these Easter eggs are Discovery Easter eggs. Yeah. Season two, yeah. <laughs> season two is also the first appearance of Gabriel Burnham. When Gabriel says, this isn't a moon, it's a ship, it seems like a Star Trek is referencing Star Wars. Who didn't think of that? Yeah. And quite famously, Obi-Wan Kenobi said, that's no moon, it's a space station. It's Star Wars, a new hope. Uh, I know. Like, well, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, but it was still fun. There are also a few precedents for spatial bodies actually being spaceships in the Trek canon in the original series. Episode for the world is hollow. I have touched the sky. An asteroid was discovered to actually be a starship. Well, on the planet Navarre, President Torina offers books some red spice. This is a very deep cut into the Deep Space Nine episode, second sight, in which the ingredient was used to make a very specific broth, which in turn was put into a stew. To be clear, Discovery basically ransacked fictional Star Trek recipe books to cook up this Easter egg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This episode marks the debut of what appears to be a bar on Star Trip Discovery, which is accented by cool flames everywhere. Is the bar named the Disco Inferno? Boom, boom, boom. I certainly hope so. That'd be so awesome. Regardless, it's about time. In the next generation, the Enterprise D had a 10 forward starting in Season 2. Meanwhile, Adira plays darts invoking the feeling of Quark's bar in Deep Space Now. Nothing like a little bar for That was great side action. Yep. In DS9, Miles O'Brien convinced Quark to put up a dartboard. As what has to be a bonus shout out to DS9 when Saru and Culber sit down at one of the tables in the bar, we see a Lurian chilling in the corner at a table alone. The most famous Lurian in Star Trek canon was Morn, a, a wordless patron of Quark's bar, who himself was in kind of an Easter egg for the character of Norm from the sitcom Cheers. This could go on and on. Yeah. We could go down yeah, we could go down the Cheers wormhole yeah. with Star Trek actors, but let's Let's leave it at this. Cheers featured a ton of track actors from the past and future, either in starring roles or guest stars, including, but not limited to, Kirsty Alley, B.B. Newworth, Kelsey Grammer, and Kate Mulgrew. This episode all makes it clear that Culber is both a medical officer on Discovery and at the ship's counselor. Culber is now the fourth character to be a Star Trek regular, or semi-regular, who has the role of ship's counselor. Obviously, Deanna Troy in The Next Generation was the first, followed by Aziri Dax in DS9 Season 7. More recently, the bird-like Dr. Maglinoas was introduced at Lower Decks as the counselor of the USS Cerritos, starting with Season 1, Episode Crisis Point in 2020. In the 23rd century, where Culver is from, the role of his counselor didn't appear to exist. I don't know why not. You would think Adam... <laughs> going, going, going to space and war? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Davini says that the alien species she's trying to protect is a high concentration of latinum in their bodies. In Deep Space Nine era, the goal... Pressed latinum was used as a currency in a big way by various species, often for black market purposes or purchases. If a species had latinum in their bodies, it would make sense that grave robbers were all over that. Man, what a tough break that was. Yeah. This episode features a mind meld between Tarina and Book. Tarina says the classic words, my mind to your mind. And I heard that music right away. I missed the music. Why didn't they play the classic music? Now, although the Vulcan mind meld, sometimes called mind probe, first appeared in the original series season one, Episode Dagger of the Mind, the words My Mind to Your Mind 
didn't appear until the original series season three episode, Spectre of the Gun. This is also the first time a mind mount was this happened in Discovery since season two. In both season one and two of Discovery, there were multiple mind melds, but then in season three. Well, might as well make good use of it. There are a few mind melds in Picard season one, though, meaning 2020 wasn't without any trick mind melds entirely. Thank goodness. That said, is the first trick mind meld in 2021. Everyone mark that down. Yep. So now, moving on to Gray's synth body works. Well, we don't know if it works. Yeah, we don't know that part yet. <laughs> yeah, everything seems to be functioning. He'll let us know later. Following the previous events of episodes and the technology established in season one of Picard, Gray now is reborn in an artificial body that is pretty much indistinguishable from an organic one, minus the uh, little <laughs> dot as wrist. When this happens, Adira mentioned they can no longer feel Gray's memories within the tall symbiote. This checks out with uh, DS9 canon, when the host of Dax inhabited other bodies in facets during the Jihan Tara, Jadzia couldn't feel those memories anymore either. Panic. Panic in the disco. When Gabriel says goodbye to Michael, she says, Jolan True. Haven't heard that in a while. That was pretty cool. Yes. This is both, yeah, this is both a Romlin greeting and a Romlin way of saying goodbye. Oh, that's like Hawaiian. The first phrase appeared in the Trek canon and the Next Generation episodes Unification 1 and Unification 2, which were pretty awesome. We also heard a lot on Star Trek Picard. So let's face it, Trek canon just can't quit those Romulans. <laughs> and they were writing Picard all along in their season. Yep. <laughs> well, our friend Fred from the Netherlands has provided us some feedback to chew on. So let's hear what he thought of the episode. Hello, Steve and Dave, and all listeners to the Fangirl Zone. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 3. First off, a question. What is the similarity between Star Trek Discovery and COVID? Well, it's contagious. And this will be the very last time I will bring up this topic, because last week's podcast I said I was happy that Soniqua Martin-Green's, or Michael's, Whispering was less. Well, it was full time back here in this episode and even her mother took it over. It's really contagious. And if people don't know what I'm talking about, have a listen. I know you don't want to kill her. And I think if we could offer you a solution, you would say whatever you have to to get me to drop my card. No. No, no lies, I promise you. We have a few minutes while Lieutenant Tilly repairs the systems. Oh yeah, at least. I mean, I'm, I'm hurrying, but I, I really did a number on this thing, so... The species sleeping in the cocoons. They're your lost cause, aren't they? You can trust her, Javini. She's my daughter. And I really don't understand it, because I have a lot of respect for Sonequa Martin-Green in acting, directing, etc. Just using this kind of tool to express emotion, uh, stressed emotion, anxiety, or emotional stuff you don't need this certainly she doesn't with her acting ability okay this is the end of my rant and i promise you i won't talk about it anymore in the rest of the series because i'm sure it will be there again just as last season actually i really have to go back to season one and two because i didn't notice it there what an episode with so many storylines if I think back of it, I think it, it were perhaps too much, but actually they are not. So we have some emotional journeys, the one of Booker, the one of Tilly actually, with going out of her comfort zone. We have the interaction of Stamets with the Navarre. We have the whole political thing. 
between the Navarre, the Quatmalat, and the Federation President and the Admiral, then the story of Adira and Grey. But I have to say, I have to give them a compliment because they nicely wove it together. Could have been too much, but it didn't feel like it. Gersha Phillips, the costume designer of Star Trek Discovery, outdid herself again with the very shiny dark uniforms of Tilly and Michael. I think Michael will end up with a whole wardrobe at the end of this season because in the first three episodes we already saw her in four different or perhaps even five different outfits. I found the Abronian and Javini story a little weak, but also Michael explained it to Javini. You just could have asked on behalf of them. And if the situation was made clear, Starfleet would have prioritized giving the Delithium to them. But probably she was afraid of Starfleet bureaucracy, which would have taken too much time perhaps. But still, little bit. By the way, because the biomatter of the Abronians has high concentrations of latinum and that attracted these robbers, I really wonder if these robbers are Ferengi. The Adira Grey story was great, bit as expected, with a little built in a little tension of course. Would it work, wouldn't it work, and of course it worked. There was just one thing I thought, and that's not nice actually, because Grey had removed the mole on his hand, and of course he could have asked to remove his acne or acne remnants in his face as well, but yeah, that's of course in the actor, and it's perhaps not very nice of me to say, but in the story it would have been an option. Many other things to discuss, but four minutes in, I think I have to stop here. This will be all. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Well, thank you, Fred. Fred's complaining about her uniforms. I'm always complaining about her hair. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting what different things you two pick up on. Now, I'm going to say that it's Burnham's mother that's causing this voice issue that Fred has. (laughs) Yeah, she did it too in the episode. That's where Burnham got it from. Yeah, yeah. That apple didn't roll far from that tree. <laughs> well, I just want to say to Fred, since uh, I mentioned it before, Sonequa Martin Green has producer credit now, which means she has input into writing. So if she feels that's important to her character, we're not going to lose it. No, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I thought they kind of wove the stories together really well as as well. Because, yeah, if they wouldn't have, it would have been too much. But they they did make it seem very seamlessly to put together. And so, as always, Fred, we really appreciate your feedback and looking forward to hearing from you again. Thank you, Fred. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on each and every episode this season. Our deadline for feedback is 6 p.m. Eastern every Friday during the season. You can send your feedback via email or audio to contact us at fangirlzone.com. You can also go to www.fangirlzone.com and click on the contact link where you'll find several ways to contact us via email and through social media, Twitter at SellerSteve or me at TheRealIDDave. Please review and rate us on iTunes and every other podcast platform you may use as good ratings and reviews help other fans of the show find us as there are a lot of Star Trek Discovery podcasts out there. Tell your friends and we hope you're enjoying our podcast and don't forget to check out the other great Fangirl Zone podcasts like the Marvelous Post Blip podcast. Yeah, it's a good one. The fourth episode is on December 9th and is titled All is Possible. Uh Uh-oh. So until then, remember, I'm Chief Engineer Steve. 
Well, they pay me by the letter. And this is Redshirt Dave. And I like my ninja sword washed and waxed.